Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific Century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. I'm without my partner, Ambassador Rich Verma, who's in India, but I'm thrilled today to be joined by, frankly, my mentor, one of my oldest friends, Dr. Joseph Nye. Dr. Nye is a distinguished university service professor and was formerly dean of Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government. He has served in a wide range of senior positions within the U.S. government government, including the U.S. State Department, the National Intelligence Council, and as my boss at the U.S. Department of Defense. Dr. Nye is also a prolific author, having published 14 academic books and many bestsellers, including his latest book, Do Morals Matter? Presidents and Foreign Policy from FDR to Trump. Dr. Nye was the first pioneer to the concept of soft power in the 1980s and is one of the world's leading scholars on international relations and U.S. grand strategy. Joe, thank you so much for being with us. It's wonderful to have you here. Kurt, it's a pleasure to be back with you. So, Joe, you've just published this book, and someone would ask, of all times right now when we're, you know, struggling with very basic things about, you know, purpose and national interest, why did you decide to do a book about whether morals matter in presidential leadership? Well, I've been thinking about it for a long time. People uh, say, is this a book about Trump? And while he's included in the 14 presidents that I look at uh, in the American era since uh, 1945, the book's really not just about Trump. Uh, it's about uh, how do we incorporate ethics into our foreign policy. And the general view Americans have is either we're good, therefore anything we do is good, uh, which doesn't look that uh, convincing to people like Mexicans or Philippines or others. Or it's the view that if we have a good outcome, if it works, then it's good, without much attention to how many people are killed in between and or what the moral consequences are when you include the unintended consequences. What I'm trying to do is get people to have a more a sophisticated or realistic debate about ethics, which means you think of three dimensions, the motives, the means, and the consequences of actions, not just uh, it's good because it has what we think of as moral clarity, or it's good because it turned out okay. I like that uh, framework because it allows us to evaluate circumstances through a multifaceted lens. But can I ask you one of the things I think oftentimes commentators and others struggle with is this um, relationship between what we might call private morals or the uh, leader's individual moral framework and the public expression of morality or, you know, morality at the national level. Is, is it possible, in your view, for a leader to be, in some respects, personally immoral, but conduct a moral foreign and uh, national policy? Yes, I think so. If you look at Jack Kennedy, his uh, womanizing uh, in today's world of Me Too, that would be pretty broadly condemned. But at the time that he did it, the press kept it quiet, and his personal immorality in terms of his relations with his wife or how he treated the women uh, who he was exploiting didn't prevent him uh, from having a sensible foreign policy. So, yes, it's possible. Times have changed, though. I don't think a president can get away with that now because his public role and his private roles are are much more closely intertwined. And in fact, Bill Clinton found that out with the Monica Lewinsky scandal. 
uh, behavior that Kennedy got away with, Clinton couldn't. Do you think that this concept of morality is deeply embedded in Western conceptions of conduct, or do you think that these are universal? Well, it uh, there is a Western tradition, but on the other hand, evolutionary biologists have found that a concern for other humans, what you might call basic altruism, is really very important to our species because it's allowed us to form large-scale organizations which have enabled the human species to do things that packs of wolves or groups of giraffes or a covey of quail couldn't do. And um, so in that sense, a degree of moral intuition exists in almost all people except psychopaths across cultures. But there's been a lot of work done about how that's interpreted. It's interpreted in different ways in different cultures. Indeed, it's interpreted in different ways in our own country. So, Joe, one of the things that's been interesting about your career, you have been, by some measures, more active and prolific in the last 10 or 15 years than you were at the beginning of your career. I I want to ask you a little bit about purpose. We conduct this podcast here. We talk to a lot of people in Washington and have the opportunity to really engage a fairly broad group of folks. I would say one of the common features of people that we speak with is that deep down it's disguised and hidden, but there's just a lot of anxiety about where the United States is heading, uh, concerns about the future, questions about purpose, really, about like, gee, everything that I've worked for, is it being you know, uh, burned in a campfire? I, I'd be curious, how do you deal with that? I mean, do you, do you experience those feelings? And how have you been so prolific and written so uh, broadly on these important issues in what I would say is a generally optimistic way? How do you do that? Well, I, I would say that I have the same set of anxieties. I mean, if you look at the many of the problems that we face right now, uh, they're pretty, pretty bad. And uh, here we are. You know, with the president uh, being impeached, uh, with a president who, according to the Washington Post, has lied 15,000 times, with a question of whether uh, people are willing to stand up for moral principles. Uh, I try to deal with this in part by writing about uh, morality in this new book without being uh, Pollyanna, with sort of saying, yes, there are times when moral actions may occur and be justified. But that doesn't mean that there's no difference between telling one or two lies and 15,000 lies. So the reason I keep writing and uh, thinking about this is because I want people to make distinctions. It's not all good and it's not all downhill. Uh, One thing that I find is in studying history that you realize that some of this we've seen before. Uh, If you ask yourself, is this the worst we've ever seen in American history? No, it's not as bad as the 1850s. It's not as bad as the 1930s. And in some ways, there are aspects of the 60s, which were pretty bad. Three assassinations, two presidents uh, driven from office in that long decade. And uh, just speaking personally, uh, as a professor at Harvard, my office was bombed. Uh, Mm. You know, the student today does not have the same 
approach that the students had in the 60s. So, you know, there are things, things today are bad and discouraging, but there have been times in the past which have been even worse and we've survived it. So, Joe, we talked a little bit about some of your contributions to American foreign policy. I think for many of us who think and work about Asia, your role in the 1990s at the Perry uh, Defense Department under Secretary Bill Perry, uh, President uh, Bill Clinton, your driving effort to really remake the U.S.-Japan relationship into what it is today, really a foundational relationship, one of our strongest alliances, has provided a bedrock of our engagement in Asia, probably one of the great foreign policy successes of the last 40 or 50 years. But but rather than taking you to look backward, I want you to I want to propel you to look forward. As you survey Asia, one of the things that we've seen over the course of the last year or so is um, a general view, I mean, it's debated, but a general view that the relationship between the United States and China has to change and that we are dealing with a China that is different under President Xi than perhaps under previous uh, Chinese leaders. And that the there are, of course, elements that the United States and China really demand cooperation like climate change, but that there are also elements of the relationship that, is, that are deeply competitive. How do we, we've never been very good as a country at that kind of balance. We almost always swing to exaggeration, to demonization. I see some of that worries me in the debate about the United States and China. How do you see the next several years playing out in the Asia-Pacific space with respect to American foreign policy? Well, to simplify your question, Kurt, the issue is whether Lyndon Johnson once put it, America can walk and chew gum at the same time. (laughs) It's not clear we can. But, you know, China is clearly rising more rapidly than expected. And uh, it's gone in a direction under Xi Jinping that uh, is more authoritarian rather than less authoritarian as its economic development has increased. And that's worrisome. On the other hand, uh, China is not Hitler's Germany. It's not trying to, it's, it wants to tip the table so that it gets more of the the money on the table, but it's not trying to kick over the table the way Hitler was trying to do or Stalin. And so what we're stuck with is a situation where the competition is going to get tougher with China. But at the same time, there's some issues where uh, the cooperation has to increase. Uh, climate change is a good example. of It's an enormous threat to us. And China produces, uh, and the U.S. together produce 40% of the CO2. Uh, it, you know, we can't bomb their coal plants. We can't sanction them if they keep burning coal. Uh, we've got to do things like getting them to set goals in the Paris Climate Accord, which has a lower carbon ratio in their economic development in the future. Uh, we can't solve this problem alone. We have to solve it with them. So we have to think of power with others, not just power over others. At the same time, there are issues like 
the China's position in the South China Sea, where we have to have freedom of navigation operations, where we have to show that we're not going to accept their encroachment on uh, areas of free seas. And similarly, on areas like the Senkakus in uh, uh, the East China Sea, uh, where we have given a guarantee to Japan that it's included within the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty and under Article 5. And we've got to make sure that's that we can do that, reinforce it. So we've got to learn to walk and chew up at the same time. Can we learn to cooperate and to compete? And to do that, we have to have an accurate assessment of China. Uh, we need to make sure we don't underestimate China, but we shouldn't overestimate China either. China has a lot of problems. Uh, sometimes people say that they have feet of clay. Uh, if you look at their demographic problems and some of their relations with their neighbors in the East Asian balance and so forth. And uh, so it's not that the Chinese hold the high hand on everything. Uh, we have a pretty high hand ourselves, but we're going to have to learn to play it more smartly than we've done. Yeah. So, Joe, one of the things that I like about the way you conceptualize Asia, and you talk about this inevitable shift in power from West to East, not just to China, but the East, a broader Asian environment that includes China, obviously, but also has uh, India and Japan and other countries playing a critical role. I have a slightly different question, though, and one of the things that I'm trying to think about myself now, I, I think that in all likelihood that the nature of diplomacy and how states interact is likely to shift and change over time, evolve, as uh, Asia becomes the epicenter of diplomacy. I think a lot mm -hmm. of our cultural and our analogies about diplomacy, how we think about it, are sort of Westphalian-based, based a lot on our own experience in Europe and uh, the Cold War. I think in all likelihood, in ways that we don't really know yet, and are, you know, we, we could kind of hint at some, but that, that diplomacy and the conduct of the interaction of how states in Asia and states with Asia that conduct that diplomacy is likely to change. Do, do you think that's right? And if so, well, how would it change? I think there's something in that, the sense that uh, if you look at the world from a long historical perspective, up until about uh, 1800 or so, uh, Asia was the leader. I mean, Asia had half the world's people and more than half of the world's economy. That changes, of course, in the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution in Britain and North America, and the 20th century, uh, very much so, which becomes the American century. Now you're on the path toward Asia getting back into its sort of proper proportion, uh, a little bit more than half the world's population, and eventually they'll have a little bit more than half the world's economy. There's bound to be adjustment we are going to have to adjust that. doesn't mean we give up our values. The question is, can we preserve the values that we care about while accommodating some yeah. of their processes? And that's, that's why we got to avoid hysteria, find bargains when we can, uh, but stand up for things that are essential to us. So, Joe, you trained a whole generation and, you know, have been involved deeply in the formulation and execution of American foreign policy. We, we were both out in Aspen this summer for the strategy group, which was a good session. Yeah. We discussed China. But one of the things that struck me was 
I do think that there is this turning to the East, but mm -hmm. what is undeniable is that we have a generation of foreign policy national security experts that were first involved largely in the Cold War and have spent the last 20 years really focused on a hot war uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, thinking about all those elements. Do you think in terms of expertise and capability and knowledge, are we prepared uh, fundamentally for the challenges of Asia? No, we're not. And that goes all the way back to the 60s in the Vietnam War. When yeah. We got involved in a civil war in Vietnam. I think uh, the estimates that there were three people in the U.S. government who spoke Vietnamese, who knew anything about the country. Fortunately, as we look at the rise of China, there are a lot more people who uh, speak Mandarin now, but not enough. And uh, the more exchanges we have, the more contact, the more we have a sophisticated understanding of Asian societies, the better. Uh, right now, a lot of young students are going to China. I hope that more will start going to Japan and other countries as well, because China is important, but it's not all of Asia. India also has to be included in that. So again, as the author of the Nine Initiative about really kind of rebuilding and strengthening the ties between Washington and Tokyo, and also at a broader level as well, how do you think Japan is coping and dealing both practically, politically, psychologically, strategically with China's rise? How do you think that's affected them more generally? Well, it, it, Japan has done better than I had thought. I mean, if it, there was a period in the 90s where there was a group within the LDP who said, we have to accommodate China. You know, China's coming up. We can't do anything about it. Uh, you know, less America, more China. You don't find much of that now. There, there's, yeah. there are little traces of it, but not a lot of it. Almost all gone, actually. Yeah, and if you if you look at the, uh, I think a big turning point was the episode over the fishing boat and the Senkakus in the, uh, in the was it 2011, in which the Japanese said, you know, these people are going to be bullies, and we're going to have to, we have to really align carefully with the Americans if we're going to be able to shape the rise of China so that it doesn't threaten us. At the same time, we're going to trade with China. This is an economic opportunity. And we're going to, we, Japanese, are going to walk and chew gum mm -hmm. at the same time. I think they've done that pretty successfully. I mean, Abe has been the most successful of all our allies in managing the problem of Donald Trump. And... Uh, People say, oh, yes, but he's now triangulating and getting closer to Xi. Not really. He's, you know, cosmetically, yes, but not mm -hmm. at, at a basic sense. Yeah, I would say I, I, I agree with that. I think generally speaking right now, you know, the most interesting diplomacy is being conducted by the middle powers, mm -hmm. the, the effective middle powers like Australia, India, and Japan. And I agree with you. It, there, there's not an accommodation between Japan and China. But basically, sophisticated middle powers do several things simultaneously. They try to strengthen the U.S.-Japan relationship or the relationship with the United States. 
They try to increase their own indigenous capabilities. They try to work with other like-minded states. And they try to do better with their relationship with China. And that, I think, seems is a natural and I think is an indication of a, of a broad and sort of well-rounded strategic approach. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is in their national interest and we shouldn't try to prevent it. What we've got to do is make sure that that leg of that triangle, which involves our relationships with them, is well-maintained and strong. And uh, what worries me is that the current administration is not paying enough attention to that. Mm-hmm. But I, but we shouldn't fret too much about Japanese trade, for example, with China. We should make sure that the Japanese understand that when it comes to their security, the way in which we cooperate with the Japanese self-defense forces and the closeness of that combined training and so forth means that we will be effective in being able to deter uh, Chinese actions. You know, today, before you came, Joe, I was reading in the Washington Post a section out of this new book, Very Stable Genius, which describes a interaction in the Pentagon between President Trump and his most senior advisors as they're trying to explain to him the importance of alliances and relationships and for deployed forces. And what basically comes out of this anecdote that's, you know, carefully wrought, very emotional, um, is that the president really is uncomfortable with many elements of the traditional approach of American foreign policy, strong alliances, trade engagements, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I do think there's a real chance that if he's reelected with, without the advantage of some of these, you know, careful strategic advisors that he had around him in the in the first part of his presidency, that he might actually really contemplate pulling American troops out of NATO, out of Korea, largely because he believes that these are, you know, basically attacks on American power and they are and we're being taken advantage of by uh, greedy allies. It's, it's a well, real I, worry. I, I try to deal with this in the book, uh, Do Morals Matter?, uh, which is Trump is very much a transactionalist. I guess it goes back to his real estate days in New York and the fact that his never had any experience in international relations. But if you take George Schultz as an exemplar of how to think about uh, foreign policy, he, anal- he makes an analogy to cultivating a garden. Yeah. Uh, you can pull up a weed here, you can plant a seed there, but you're basically making sure that the whole garden is going to flourish over time. Trump doesn't think that way. But what I try to show in the book is that the founders in the American era of uh, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, and one of the heroes in my book, George H.W. Bush, thought in these broad terms, here's the garden that we're going to create, and within that garden, we can see better actions than if you take each transaction by itself. And if Trump doesn't understand that, and if he loses the advisors who are able to understand that, we're going to be in for a much worse world. Mm Mm-hmm. Joe, I'm glad that you uh, mentioned George Schultz. I think for many of us, although sort of under-celebrated in some respects, mm-hmm. uh, he was, at least in Asia, one of the most uh, important foreign policy actors. And this metaphor of working the garden is a very effective way to think about Asia as you go mm-hmm. forward. As you look at the last you know, 30 or 40 years, 
of leaders in the United States. Who, if any, do you think have made, you know, ma- either at state or defense or also major contributions to how the United States engages in Asia more generally? Well, I think for better and worse, Harry Truman uh, yeah. was critical. Uh, people often cite the fact that he dropped the bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They rarely cite the fact that when MacArthur said to him, I need to drop 25 to 40 bombs on Chinese cities, and uh, otherwise we're going to lose the Korean War, Truman said no. That made a huge difference to Asia and actually to the world. So, I, I, and of course, Truman's intervention in Korea in the first place mm-hmm. in, in June of 1950. So, I, I, if you ask who was a a key figure of the post-war presidents regarding Asia, you've got to start with Truman. In more recent years, I think the the administration you and I served in, the Clinton administration, though it started off on the wrong foot with seeing Japan as a threat, actually uh, it didn't, as some people say, succumb to illusions about uh, China, everything would turn out right if we traded with China. It started out with uh, reaffirming the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. Mm -hmm. We went back to balance of power 101 and said if there are three powers in the region, U.S., Japan, and China, it's better to be part of the two than the one. And things were trending where we were going to be the one, not the two. Mm -hmm. From that position of strength, then we could try to engage China. In some ways, we're successful, in some ways less so. But I thought that Clinton actually prepared a framework for uh, dealing with East Asia, which while it has its faults and flaws, uh, has worked out reasonably well. Yeah. I'd also say, Joe, in terms of your other many contributions, the book that I always think about and helps me when I start worrying about American decline and staying power, the book that you wrote in the late 1990s, early 2000s, Bound to Lead, which was really about the enduring qualities of American leadership. I think Mm -hmm. that contribution in terms of how we think about not only the American role in the world, but particularly in Asia, was extremely valuable. And at least it bucks me up when I start getting worried. So Joe, Dr. Nye, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I know Rich will look forward to engaging with you subsequently. And I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves. Tea Leaves.